Around the world, populations are ageing rapidly. There is currently more than 1 billion people over the age of 60 years, representing 14% of the global population. By 2050, this population will have more than doubled to 2.1 billion. With population ageing as the backdrop, a number of global challenges take centre stage, including rising rates of non-communicable diseases, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the threat of future global pandemics, climate change, mobilisation of civil society and economic uncertainty. The United Nations Decade of Healthy Ageing, launched in 2021, represents a concerted action to prioritise healthy ageing and improve the lives of older people. Amidst the backdrop of the decade, now is the time to explore challenges and strategies to improve health and social systems that ultimately impact the function and quality of life of current and future generations of older people. My name is Jane Barrett, Secretary General of the International Federation on Ageing. Join me, along with esteemed experts and colleagues, in a series of dialogues which aim to help reframe the intersecting challenges that impact not only the health and well-being of older people, but the way we all live and age. This is the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. Welcome back to the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. True to the name of this series, today's episode calls for a change in how we think about aging. In conversation with my expert guests, we take a fascinating look at the individual and societal perception of ageing, the value of protecting our health in later years and throughout life, and lessons on longevity learned from the lives and stories of centenarians. I'm pleased to be joined by two experts in this field, Professor Andrew J. Scott and Professor Bradley J. Wilcox. Andrew J. Scott is Professor of Economics at London Business School, having previously held positions at the Oxford University, London School of Economics and Harvard University. His work focuses on economics of longevity and he is the co-author of the best-selling and award-winning books The Hundred Year Life and The New Long Life. Bradley J. Wilcox is a professor and director of research in the Department of Geriatric Medicine at the John A. Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii. Additionally, Dr. Wilcox serves as the director of the NIH-funded Centre of Biomedical Research Excellence for Translational Research on Ageing and is principal investigator of the Hawaii Lifespan and Healthspan Study. Along with his twin brother, he is co-investigator of the Okinawan Centenarian Study, a population-based study of centenarians in Japan examining genetic and environmental contributions to longevity. A 
As part of the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast today, we're talking with experts Professor Andrew J. Scott, Professor of Economics at the London Business School, and Professor Bradley J. Wilcox, Professor and Director of Research at the Department of Geriatric Medicine, John A. Burns School of Medicine, University of Hawaii. Our focus today will be prioritising prevention to advanced economies, societies and longevity. Um, Andrew, as a Professor of Economics at the London Business School, how do you define ageing societies as compared to longevity societies? Are they one and the same or are they quite different? No, I think they're really different. I'm really keen to sort of push this concept of longevity societies. I'm thrilled to be part of this uh, podcast. So thank you for inviting me. So ageing society as an economist, I spent a lot of time looking at ageing society. And what's interesting as an economist is it's all set up as a problem. Uh, and ageing society is about demographic change. It's about a change in the age structure of the population. There's a fall in the birth rate. People are living for longer. So there's more old people and fewer younger people. So whether you look at proportion of people aged over 65, over 85, it's rising. And it's rising everywhere around the world. And it's a great achievement. We've got people living for longer. But the standard approach is it's a problem. Old people don't work. They need money. They get ill. They have demand for resources. And it's going to slow the economy down. I think that focus on changing the age structure population is not the most interesting thing that's happening. So I like to talk about a longevity society, which is about the fact that we're living for longer. I mean, global life expectancy now is over 72 years, which is quite remarkable. And in the high income countries, the probability of living into your 90s is really significant. I mean, the UK government, which is certainly not the best of high income countries, says a child today has a 50% chance of living into their 90s. So for the first time ever, the young can expect to become the old and even the very old. And that's the longevity society that we need to adapt to. We need to do things differently. When for the first time ever, we're likely to become old, we need to invest a lot more in those later years. And it's a bit late to do it when we're old. We have to change what we do over the course of our life. And that's about all sorts of things. It's about changing the map of life. So, uh, 20th century, we invented teenagers and pensioners. And I think we're seeing people behave now differently in their 20s. They're working for longer. We need to adapt our life course. But of course, one of the most important things is to make sure we age well. And part of that is health. And part of that is about engagement and how we ensure at a younger age, how we give ourselves that platform to do so is crucial. So that's what I mean by longevity society, changes in how we age. And an aging society is changes in the age structure of the population. Thank you for that. I've never heard about this changing the map of life. I've always heard that ageing is always set up as a problem. But Bradley, you're coming from Hawaii and you are one of the um, investigators in a very important study, the Okinawan study. So is ageing a problem, you know, in the world that you live in, in the Okinawan study? I think that uh, that's a very good question. Is ageing a problem? I I think that in many ways, the Okinawans uh, have, have become among the most successful agers because aging is celebrated. It's not a problem. Um, in fact, they have milestones um, that they, they like to achieve. Uh, for example, the top milestone is living to be 97 because then you've kind of, it's, they have a ceremony, ceremony called Kajimaya and you're celebrated all through the village and it's, it's really a, uh, something that people look forward to. So I, I think it really depends on how you look at it. And because the Okinawans have been 
uh, among the healthiest populations in the world, they haven't suffered from uh, as many chronic age-related diseases as other populations. So it's, it's easier to age, I think, when you're healthy and you, you feel good. I just want to go back to the successful aging and the celebration of life and longevity. But it's not always the same, is it, Andrew, across the populations? And I know that you have a perspective about, you know, the economic, societal and individual value of life expectancy. I'm impressed that today, you know, um, younger people in in the UK have a 50% chance of reaching 90. But what's their quality of life going to be like? Well, I mean, you go back to whether ageing is a problem. I don't think it is. And, but of course, it is a problem if we don't have resources to maximise our chances of ageing well. And of course, what we know is that there's a big shift in the disease burden as we live longer. We're more likely now to experience age-related diseases. And of course, how we age is incredibly diverse. And that's one of the challenges of this. But obviously, we all want to make sure that we can age as well as we can. And so we've now got a new health burden that's rising dramatically around the world, given that, you know, the majority of older people live in low and lower middle income countries of tackling these age related diseases. So there's a big shift from the diseases that used to affect us in early life towards now worrying about these later uh, life diseases. So really important to do that. But also, it's not just about health, it's also about activity and inclusion. And I think, again, I just come back to this very simple point. For most of human history, we haven't expected to reach these older ages. It's not that there haven't been old people, it's always been old people. But we're now looking at the world of a sort of majority of people in young and middle ages getting to those um, eighth or ninth decade, possibly even longer. And so we really need to structure our life, our institutions and our resources to put more um, resources into those years. And not when, just when we're at 80 or 90, but when we're 30, 40, 50 or 60. And that wasn't relevant in the past because you had a much smaller chance of getting to those ages. So I think the question here is what is the economic and social gains to longevity. I'll put it really simply in economic terms. It's, there's two of them. One is we have more time. And so we want to use that time. Of course, that time is more valuable if we can do things with it, if we've got health and engagement. And I think that's the second thing we're starting to understand, which is that age is malleable. And once you understand that age is malleable, you then see, wow, this is incredibly important because I know I'm now likely to reach a much older age than past generations. I worry about whether I'm going to age well or not. What do I do today? And I think that's, for me, the simple, uh, you know, logical challenge we've got. You tell people you're probably, you know, the, the odds are you're going to live a lot longer than past generations. People then worry about whether they're going to get ill and well. And you say, well, what do you do today to make sure you can change it? And as Bradley can no doubt tell us, there's lots of things you can do to make sure we age more healthily. Look, before I pass on to Bradley, I just want to go back to this, our lives, the institution and the resources and ask you a question about, you know, in these times of austerity and many governments, you know, are really struggling with the investment made during the pandemic. What's the business case for government around investment in health promotion and prevention and institutions, you know, that actually create this environment that enable? So I'll give you three different answers. Economists, of course, I can't just give you one, but they're three slightly different ones. And one of them is one I often hear from the health sector, 
which is simply, well, we've got, you know, we've got this huge increase in older people. We're going to see a huge increase in medical expenditure on dementia, arthritis, diabetes, the illnesses that come with older ages. And we've got to try and not to spend so much. So let's keep people healthy. And I think that's right. I actually think that's a little bit overplayed because if we found a, I don't know, a cure for dementia that costs 25% more than the current costs we're spending, I would absolutely spend that money. So uh, I think we can exaggerate the role of costs uh, too much. The second one I often hear, which I think is really important, is that um, if we keep people healthier and productive for longer, you can just produce more GDP, more output. Now, GDP is far from being the only thing that matters, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but it helps if you generate extra resources. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to get governments around the world to understand that investing in health education isn't just good for the economy when you do it for young people. It's also good when you do it for older people. And uh, one of the interesting things they're seeing in the US and the UK at the moment is a lot of older people withdrawing from the labour market and it's causing contributing to inflation. And one of the reasons they're doing it is because of health. And so they're suddenly like, oh, how do I keep people working after 50? Not just changing the state pension age, but from 50. So there's an economic dividend, I think, to be had. But the third thing, which I think is above all the most important thing, which is just health is really valuable. And when governments allocate resources because they know that we value good health, COVID is a really interesting example. We took steps which trounced the economy, led to big falls in GDP to save lives. And we already allocate health expenditure on that basis. And when you start to think about the value of healthy ageing, it's enormous. I'd done this and work with Martin Ellison from Oxford and David Sinclair from Harvard. And what I was trying to do was apply some economic tools to put a dollar value on how much we value different improvements in our health. And the results were uh, staggering. Um, they showed you a couple of things. One is the most important thing is just not living long, but making sure we're healthy for long. But the other thing I think was interesting, if we could try and get us to age better, if we could increase life expectancy by one year just by uh, slowing down the rate of ageing, it's worth in present value terms $51 trillion to the US economy. So that just says health is really important. The biggest health challenge now is ageing well, and there's going to be a lot more old people. It's incredibly valuable. Yeah, look, it sure is. Um, and I'm going to take that information and, and turn to you, Bradley. You know, your work in centenarians is um, landmark. So what are the perspectives, lived experiences and practices of centenarians really tell us about healthy ageing and longevity? I think you see with centenarians, generally I think you, you can use one word to describe most of them is that they have a certain balance in their lives. So, you know, they're not totally out of kilter in some way. Um, so they generally uh, have a reasonable diet. Uh, in Okinawa, of course, it's healthier than most places, and that's partly a reason why there's a lot more centenarians there. And they're usually fairly active, even just walking. They generally are not uh, sort of out of balance psychologically. They generally have positive, optimistic attitudes, like can, can do people. Um, and importantly, um, it's hard to become a centenarian if you don't have health care. So, uh, there's certainly socioeconomic factors that are at play too. Wealthier people tend to live longer, for example. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed some of the comments that uh, a Andrew was uh, mentioning about uh, uh, people living longer and if they stay healthier, there's 
more productivity to the economy. And that, I think, uh, again, uh, because I have the most, ex- uh, my, mo- my biggest experience with centenarians is the Okinawan centenarians. Um, so uh, they continue working. They never, they don't retire. There's no such word in the Okinawan language for retirement. They just keep going. So, if, but they, you know, they slow down, uh, but they still do what they did. If they were farmers, they continue farming. If they were fisher folk, they continue fishing. Um, and in terms of cost or burden uh, on the healthcare system, if people live to be 100, they actually have lower costs at the end of their lives. If you look at someone who died at the age of 100, you know, they're not spending two months in the hospital. They're spending a couple of days and they die quickly of something like pneumonia. So there's a lot of value, I think, in, in, in longevity. Um, and we, there's always this question, too, about how much is genetics, how much is lifestyle. Uh, or non-genetic factors. And if you look at uh, a lot of centenarian researchers, um, they uh, I've heard this over and over again from some of my colleagues. Uh, oh, you know, they, they smoke, they drink, they, they don't care about their diet. They, you know, uh, the only commonality is genetics. And then I, uh, I like to pull up a figure in, in my PowerPoint presentation if, if, I, if I ever hear that. And I say, okay, um, you see that p-value in, in our cohort, who we followed since they were middle-aged, and a bunch of them became nonagenarians and centenarians, it has 28 zeros in it. In other words, it's highly significant whether you smoked or not making it to be a centenarian. So, you know, let's sort of get real here. There's lots of things you can do to optimize your, your health span and your lifespan. You know, I recall, Bradley, in reading some of your work and your books, you know, this reason to get out of bed in the morning, this sense of worth, um, can you talk a little bit about that? And is that one of the factors needed to compress morbidity? You know, you've, you've talked about, you know, continuing to work, but I recall there was something about being valued and valuing what you do. Was that part of your findings? Definitely, yeah. I mean, again, uh, longevity is valued uh, in the Okinawan society. So uh, as you get older, you feel valued and you're celebrated every few years, 88th birthday, 97th birthday, 77, 66. Uh, So you're looking forward to that um, and your opinions matter. Um, But there's also, when you say a a reason to get out of bed in the morning, that's called, they they call that in, in Japanese, they call it ikigai. And every one of these centenarians has an ikigai. They have a reason that they get up in the morning. I remember one centenarian, uh, he, as he got old, uh, well, he raised bulls. <laughs> you wouldn't think there's bullfighting in uh, Japan, but in Okinawa, <laughs> there's bullfighting. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it, it exists. And so he had two prize bulls, and he took care of them. And, he, and that was, you know, every morning he, he got up and he took care of them, and he fed them, you know, trained them, and he was 102. And, and he would go to the bullfights and... And, you know, others, you know, it might be their, their family or the, their faith or whatever. They, you know, they have a reason to, 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 to get up in, in the morning. And I think that's really important. Yes, and I certainly agree. I want to now pull that idea through and talk to Andrew about the UN Decade of Healthy Ageing. Um, you know, it was launched in 2020, I think, or perhaps 2021. Um, and there are four action areas. There's... Ageism, combating ageism, long-term care, primary integrative care and age-friendly environments. But I don't see prevention in there. 
And I guess my thought, my, my, my question to you is about, you know, why should we prioritise healthy ageing? And I know that we should, but how can we embed this notion of prevention in the UN Decade of Healthy Ageing? And what do we need to do as, um, as listeners to this podcast? Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the real tensions in the area because, of course, with a rising number of older people, we must make sure that we support older people. But, of course, for the longevity society, what's really happening is the young now have a very high chance of becoming old. So that lifetime perspective is also really, really important. And whilst I'm, you, know, you can do something about how you age at every age, it's obviously even better if you start earlier. Uh, you've got more runway to have a, a, a benefit on. And I think that's where the prevention stuff really comes in. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of that ageing society approach is the word ageing, it's just, it just has such a lot of weight attached to it. And, the, you know, when we use the word ageing, it just varies so much from context to context, what we're referring to. But the ageing society story does tend to focus on later life. It does tend to sort of make the idea that ageing is an event that happens to you in the future when you hit 65, you're suddenly old, and that being old is a state, and once you're old, that's it. And I think that's a, that's a really, really dangerous way of thinking about things, because what we know, of course, is ageing is a process, um, and as a process, it's malleable, and we need to make sure that we maximise our chances of ageing well, and prevention absolutely has to be key, because the shift in the disease burden towards age-related diseases it's a lot easier to deal with age-related diseases before you have them than when you've got them. Uh, so prevention absolutely is critical. And of course, if you can delay getting one age-related disease, you then often delay substantially getting two or three uh, age-related diseases. So the gains are enormous. It's about prevention rather than intervention, because above all, it's about health and not illness. It's about staying healthy for longer. So it's that second dimension of the longevity dividend extending health span and that's not about eradic you know, intervening when we get ill it's about prevention and i think that's challenging because of course we have a health system that's based successfully around interventions and if you start thinking about prevention who the providers of health suddenly expand enormously and bradley was talking about smoking but obviously the environment uh the food and drink that you eat uh the social institutions suddenly your health becomes really multi-dimensional in terms of who provides it so i think there's a, a bias to come back to interventions because that's what's worked and we have a health system based around it but it's going to be a really big shift that's needed to move to prevention and i like this notion of prevention versus intervention and basically you know bradley in your work and throughout your life you've really endeavored as a, a gerontologist and geriatrician to really focus on this prevention what are the other preventative actions that society can take, you know, pulling through from what you know from the Okinawan study and other research? I want to circle back to what Andrew was saying about uh, prevention and health span and biological versus chronological aging, because I think that that's the key. Whether you're a baby boomer or whatever age you are, you know, you can go through your 20s and uh, in, into your 30s and you don't really feel aging until it starts to catch up with you and so you think you're bulletproof but aging you know begins early and uh so i think one of the ideas in terms of prevention is to understand your biological age versus your chronological age chrono you know obviously chronological age is 
you know, your, your birthday, how, how old are you? So I'm uh, 61, but um, <laughs> I'm whispering that, so I hope nobody heard it. But I, I, you know, one of the things I'm interested in uh, as someone who studies also the biology of aging is what are the biomarkers that tell you how old you are on the inside? And so there are such biomarkers, but they're not in, in, in common clinical use. And you only are as old. We talk about uh, biological age and we talk about epigenetic age, and that's sort of a rough idea uh, of, uh, you know, from, from the blood, uh, you know, what, how, how old you, you, you might be. But you can change your uh, epigenetic age because it's a short-term, you know, sort of uh, thing. And, and you, all of a sudden you look like you're 40 instead of 60, but are you really? You're creating the environment, I think, in your body by eating better, by exercising to lower your epigenetic age because you're slowing down the damage. But that doesn't mean you're reversing your biological age. So your biological age, I think, can be measured by things like uh, corn and calcium. That correlates really well with your biological age. Uh, with, um, and, you know, the higher your score, the faster you're aging. We published a study on uh, Joe Biden and uh, uh, Donald Trump when they were facing off for the presidential election and we we uh we looked at the biological age of both of them and despite the fact that joe biden was uh, about four years chronologically older he was about four years biologically younger than donald trump so that tells you something and so you are as weak as your weakest organ for example if you have a apoe 44 alzheimer's you know risk genotype your brain is likely to age at a faster rate, even though your heart might be younger. Generally, they correlate pretty well, but we always have an outlier. So what we're creating now is we're trying to operationalize our research to create ways to measure biological age. So we're, we're setting up a health span clinic in Hawaii. So if you're ever in Hawaii, look us up. We'll be open soon for coming in and checking out the biological age of your various organ systems and then getting advice, if there is advice, on how to slow your aging. I think what Brady said is absolutely key. And I think, you know, we focus on chronological age. And for me, there's two other much more important concepts of age. And one, Bradley, is absolutely um, nailed, which is biological age. The other one is uh, prospective age or thanatological age, how many more years left you can expect to live. And I think that's really important because if you've got a lot more years ahead, you, investing in your biological age is much more important. Uh, and I want to come back to this sort of lifespan effect of it changes our horizon. It's much more important to age well. And what's interesting about biological age, which is Bradley says, it's malleable. You can change it. And of course, analytical age captures that longevity effect. We can now expect to live more years. The average Brit has never been so old, but never had so many years left to live. And I'm not sure you can call that an aging society unambiguously. Whereas when we look at chronological age, it misses both of those effects. It misses the malleability of age because one year is always one year. It's always 12 months. And it always measures your age from when you were born as opposed to how many more years you have left to live. So it misses the two most fundamental things that are occurring, uh, which we have to seize more time and the malleability of age. So I just want to echo what Bradley says, that importance of biological age and moving away from chronological age. You know, that really is a massive shift in the way that we think as individuals and society, but also government. And I, I know, Andrew, you've been really hard at work in writing a book 
and I was fascinated to hear of the title, Evergreen. Can you talk with us a little bit about what is this book all about? Because I, my guess is that it really brings together some of the, the comments that uh, Bradley and you have made today. Yeah, it's really saying how do we adapt to a longevity society and if the chances of you becoming old or very old are now so much higher, you have to individually as a society invest more into those later years. Because if we don't, then we're going to have a repeated cycle where we arrive into these later years without the health and support that we need and without the social institutions to enable us to be engaged. And given how many of us are now going through to these later years, that's going to be a, a major problem. The problem, I think, with the ageing society is it, say, it, it focuses upon chronological age, it ignores the malleability of age, it focuses upon end of life and sort of being ill, which is a terrible way of seeing what's really happened. For the first time in human history, you know, we're seeing fewer children dying in their early years, fewer parents snatched away in midlife, more grandparents meeting grandchildren. And then the economists turn around and say, oh, it's a problem. Uh, so, you know, this is a great achievement we've done, but we need to change our institutions because never in human history have the young had such a high probability of becoming the old. And so we've got to change some pretty fundamental ways we live our life, how we think about it. But the ageing society, I think, reflects, at least in many countries, a, a tendency to underestimate the capacity of later years. And if you underestimate the capacity of later years, you don't invest in them. And that is what we have to change. But what I'm trying to do in many ways is to try and move away from this notion of a silver economy or an aging society, which is about people being older and more old people, to this notion of evergreen, which is, well, you've got more time ahead of you. How do you prepare for that future? How do we do things differently? And how do we get, particularly for me, ministries of finance to understand that if we're living these longer lives, we have to deliver what I call a three-dimensional longevity dividend. We've already achieved remarkable improvements in average life expectancy, but we've got to make sure that health catches up with life expectancy and our productive opportunities, our opportunities to be engaged in society also are stretched out to last that life. Um, otherwise, it's not such a great achievement, but the returns to doing that are enormous, both for us as individuals, uh, because now the biggest health challenge is aging well, but also, I think, for the economy, because if we can keep people uh, active and engaged for longer, we create the resources we need to fund those longer lives. So roughly, that's what the book's about. I'm looking forward to reading it. And uh, I also, the silver economy or the silver tsunami, we need to put that to bed and close that door. Bradley, you, um, in your work in Japan, you know, it's a super age society. So what is Japan doing? you know, in respect of this malleability of age? You know, do you see that there are investments? Do you see that there is progress in the position that Andrew has framed so well? That's an excellent question. And uh, again, um, I think Andrew, for his thoughts, I echo entirely what, he, what he's saying and that prevention is really important. Um, one thing that Japan does uh, is they have a preventive health checkup. It's called the Ningen Dock, which means, literally translated, means human dry dock. So you think about a boat, right? And you, you want to fix your, your boat. you got to put it up on the dry dock and look underneath and check this and check that. Well, that's, that's their concept. So everybody in Japan, uh, first of all, they have universal health care, uh, which the United States could learn something about. Um, and then everybody gets a preventive health check. My twin brother, Craig, who lives in Japan, 
and who's uh, my co-investigator uh, on, on the Centenarian study and many other studies that we're working on, um, it's remarkable. He says, oh, look, look at all the numbers I got. How are your numbers, Brad? You know, he comes back from his, his annual health check. I'm like, gee, I haven't had my checkup for a couple of years. <laughs> so <laughs> got to get on that. I said, but you're my identical twin genetically, so those numbers probably work for me too. So, uh, so, but it's really amazing. And people, um, if they work for, say, a Toyota or something, they get the gold level. Our company pays for the sort of the gold level check, but everyone gets a basic check, and then they can start prevention from an early, uh, early stage. Like, say they're pre-diabetic. Well, now's the time to work on it before you become a full-blown diabetic. So I think that has uh, a lot of health dividends. Um, and then Japan has a head start on most of us because the diet, uh, by its nature, is a lot healthier than the, than the Western diet, particularly the Okinawans. So that I think gives gives them a leg up. Um, so they're also quite physically active as, as a people. They have a, <laughs> they have a show on uh, the radio, it's called Radio Taiso. So every morning, you know, uh, you can, it's broadcast all over Japan. So you get up and, you know, you do your exercises in the morning for the Radio Taiso. And it's, it's even broadcast in some of the towns like, oh, it's Radio Taiso time. So all the old people get up and, you know, move around. And so, so they're doing a lot of things right. And another thing I think that they're doing right is uh, they have a national long-term care insurance program where everybody at, uh, in, in their 40s uh, basically um, has to buy into. And so, and they have various levels of care, etc. So, and then there's a lot of preventive stuff. Uh, how shall I say? Proponents of the program are are things like uh, day. Uh, we call them adult daycare facilities here, but similar thing. Um, and, uh, and so that's all free as part of this program. So you can go, you know, you're, you're whatever, 65 or, uh, actually, you know, you, you can go, I think from, it doesn't have to be a specific age. It's like when you reach, uh, there is a specific age, but, uh, if you're not as healthy, you get earlier access. So, you know, and so it's interesting because when you look at healthcare costs, like Okinawa, for example, again, uh, had the lowest healthcare costs in all of Japan, uh, despite being the you know the longest lived people and the, the the faster aging society. However, when the long term care insurance program came about, uh, Okinawans are very social people, so they're uh, so <laughs> everybody joined. So it may, may have driven the healthcare costs up a little bit because there were there were healthcare facilities that were oh come to our program and there were we got a free bus and they'd go around in all the neighborhoods in Okinawa and come on and, and then try to give a better deal than the <laughs> so they were competing for the elderly to join their programs. So pretty interesting. It certainly is. And I'm sure that there are lessons learned from Japan that could be translated and adapted. You know, coming towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask both of you for your key takeaway messages but before I do that, Andrew, I'm going to ask about how do we foster collaboration? Because a major shift in policy development, and that's also not only institutional and government, but a mind shift with individuals is going to take collaboration across sectors and across disciplines. How can that happen from your perspective? I wish I had a 
quick and good answer to that one. And I think, you know, one of the challenges we've got, if you think about what drives healthy aging and healthy longevity, is is everything. You know, just think of the number of things that Brad's talked about. So you do need to sort of have a joined up, coordinated approach. Um, I, I, I Personally, I think government should have as a, a central uh, indicator of how they perform is a measure of healthy life expectancy. I think it's just absolutely crucial. Uh, and the older, more older people we have, the, the more important it is. So I, I think that's one way. And then, of course, I think you then start to have like, a, I don't know, a longevity council, but some some joined up approach to, to look at healthy life expectancy. It's truly extraordinary to me how much focus there is on GDP, how little focus on life expectancy there is. When life expectancy goes down, it, it, there's not sort of major policy initiatives when GDP goes down, there is. Uh, so I, I think we just need to put health more centering over healthy life expectancy at the heart of it. But I think the challenge, if I go back to you know what I think we are, I just keep going back to the expression, for the first time in human history, the young can expect to become the old. And that means we've got so many different assumptions to unwind, so many deep-seated changes to occur. Um, I think we can learn a lot from the success stories, and Okinawa is clearly one of them. Um, but I, I think it, it just takes time. I think it's like water dripping on a stone until eventually people get it. Uh, to be a bit more encouraging, I think see signs that things are beginning to change. Um, I, I think it's probably a bit like sort of how people adjusted to the environmental agenda. It happens too slowly and a bit late, but you see progress happening. And I think it's, I hope it's beginning to happen. I certainly see in media coverage of these topics, just greater awareness of the health issue in particular and how important it is. Yes, and certainly leadership from yourself and uh, Bradley and others around the world but it's about coming together with a common agenda and both of you today, you know, have come to this topic from different perspectives but clearly are aligned. So as we finalise this podcast entitled Prioritising Prevention to Advance Economies, Societies and Longevity, Bradley, what's your takeaway message to the audience today? Well, I, I echo again. I think Andrew and I are two peas in a pod here with regard to ageing. Um, a lot of similar views, and it's interesting as, you know, he's coming as a, an economist, I'm coming as a geriatrician, and we're talking the same language, which is remarkable. So uh, that gives me hope. Um, but I think the, 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 the biggest message is it's really never too late. Aging is malleable, as Andrew says, and the sooner you start understanding how old your body is from a biological age, the more time you have to correct some issues uh, and the technology exists right now I mean you can go deep into you know paying thousands of dollars of image on imaging studies etc or you can do simple things like a simple lung function test FEV1 which you know you can go and get at your doctor you can just buy it on a pulmonary function meter on online and that correlates really well with your lung age so uh, and a lot of them have, uh, they, they, they've done some, you know, it, it's, it's sort of rough lung ages based on your FEV1, but it, it, it's not entirely precise, but it really can motivate people. For example, in the UK, this, gosh, 10, 15 years ago, they, uh, they calculated, that, uh, you know, how FEV1 declines with age. So, uh, and that's how much uh, air you can blow out in one second. Um, and it correlates really well with how long your, your lungs are going to last. So they, they brought in a bunch of smokers 
and they checked their FEV1 and said, okay, and let's say you're 50, and they said, you got the long age of an 80-year-old. And it was remarkable how many people quit smoking after that. So you can really motivate people if, if you understand these, these figures. Um, and even something as simple as a pulse wave velocity meter, you can get that online. And it's, you know, there's various stages of accuracy, but it's remarkable. I checked my, uh, it, it correlates really well with your, how old your, your, your heart and your, your circulatory system is. Um, I got the age of 40, and then my twin brother, uh, he did it. He got the age of 39. I was a little jealous, but, you know, but I thought, well, you know, for a, an inexpensive piece of equipment, you know, that's pretty good. Um, and so... It, uh, and so, yeah, I think we have we we have to just uh, remember that it's never too late. Start reading more about this uh, and trying to understand, you know, what your weak points are, and, and do the best you can. And we all know that uh, preventive activities like healthy diets, physical activity, you know, good good uh, you know psychological you know positive attitude, social factors—they're all important. So try to keep all that in balance. And I think that's the key message I wanted to put out. Look, thanks very much, Bradley. And Andrew, your final message? Yeah, well, Bradley's picked up on the biological age. Let me pick up on perspective or thanatological age, um, which is that no matter how old you are, you can expect more years ahead of you than past generations. So you need to age differently from your parents and your grandparents. And if you've got more time ahead of you, you need to invest in that future more. And that investing, of course, health is absolutely foundational but also it's about your sense of purpose your engagement your relationships uh, and of course your finances and your skills as well but i say no matter what your age you can expect more years ahead of you than past generations so you've got to invest in your future more and do things differently from the past which i hope is exciting it's exciting for me and i've learned a tremendous amount from both of you professor andrew j scott professor of economics at the london business school and Professor Bradley J. Wilcox, Professor and Director of Research at the Department of Geriatric Medicine, University of Hawaii. And we've been listening to podcast from the Reframing Healthy Aging series, Prioritising Prevention to Advance Economies, Societies and Longevity. Thank you. Thank you again to my guests, Professor Andrew J. Scott, and Professor Bradley J. Wilcox. In the midst of global population ageing, there is a need to change our perceptions on ageing and the value of life in later years. Now more than ever before, there is certainty that the young will grow old. Accordingly, institutions must support the power of life in later years and celebrate ageing. We must recognise that healthy ageing has the power to benefit economies, global systems and individuals. The International Federation on Ageing wishes to thank Amgen for their support in the creation, design and production of the podcast series Reframing Healthy Ageing. To find more information on this episode and read the associated blog, please visit ifa.ngo. Let's continue the dialogue on healthy ageing. Follow, like and engage with us on social media at IFAging. See you next time.